0: I invite you to turn over with me now to the 16th chapter of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 16. Two Sundays ago, we began our study of Paul's letter to the Philippians. But to start with, we're stepping back to try to set the letter in its context, try to fill in some of the backstory. story. And so two weeks ago, we looked at how this letter fits into Paul's life as a whole. Maybe you remember that. We walk through the whole story of Paul from his birth in Tarsus around the year five all the way 60 years later to his death in the city of Rome. Then last Sunday, I began to tell the story of the church plant in Philippi, the first days that Paul ever stepped foot in the city of Philippi. And today I want to finish the rest of that story. So if you look at Acts chapter 16 can maybe look down to about verse 11 to 15. That's the first story of what happened in Philippi. It was a story you might remember, as so we looked at last week, about one specific woman, a well-off, single, Gentile businesswoman who wasn't even from Philippi. Her name was Lydia, and on perhaps the very first Saturday that Paul and his teammates, Silas, Timothy, and Luke, maybe the very first Saturday, first Sabbath day, that they were in the city of Philippi, they went down to try to find the local Jewish place of prayer down by the river. They found a group of women gathered there. There'd be Jewish women and God-fearing Gentile women there, and men, but Luke focuses in on the women, and they get down there, and they meet with them, and they begin to tell them the story of Jesus. One of those ladies was Lydia, a seller of purple stuff from her hometown of Thyatira. Lydia was already interested in the God of Israel. That's why she would be at a Jewish house of prayer. But on this day, as she hears about Jesus for probably the first time in her life, the Lord opens her heart to see that Jesus is the promised king that she had been hearing about and singing about in Israel's scriptures. She believes in the Lord and follows in baptism and so does her whole household. And as the Lord opens her heart, she opens her home. She urges these guys to stay with her and she prevails and gets them to stay there. Lydia's home becomes the the new center for their ministry in Philippi. And as the new church begins to grow in the city, Lydia's home becomes its very first meeting place. Okay, that's where we left off a week ago. Now I want to go to the second story, the one that is probably even more well-known of what happened in Philippi. Let's pick up in Acts chapter 16, verse 16. It says, as we were going to the place of prayer, so they're going back, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and who brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. Now, we don't know how much time has passed since the Lydia story and this one, but you can see they continue to go down to the Jewish place of prayer to talk with people down there. And one day, while they're going, they meet a slave girl. Now, that would not be uncommon to meet a slave in a Roman city, because a huge amount of the population at this time were slaves. But what stands out about her is that she wasn't just possessed by some owners, she was possessed by a spirit of divination, which is to say, she is possessed by a demon. And the evil spirit has given her the ability to tell the future to some degree. And because of that, her owners love her. Not really her per se, but they love what they can get out of her because they can make a lot of money from that special ability that she has. So then verse 17, she does something unexpected. She followed Paul and us crying out, these men, are servants of the Most High God. And they are telling you the way to be saved. Now, what do you think about it? You can imagine her doing a bunch of things, probably based on the first description, but probably not that. You wouldn't think she would do that. Can you imagine this young lady who has a demon, and people know who she is. And she just follows Paul and this small group of guys around town shouting to everyone, these guys are the real deal. (laughs) Listen to these guys. They'll tell you what you need to hear. They are servants of the Most High God. Okay, now think about that. Is what she is saying true? Is this a good thing or a bad thing, that she is doing this? On the one hand, I think we could say all of those things are true, but on the other hand, this whole situation is very misleading to say the least. Okay, so why do I say that? Okay, for one thing, we are reading it as Christians. So when we hear <clears throat> the most high God, who do you think of? You think of your God, like the God we worship here. But for those in Philippi, <clears throat> they would have been just as likely, probably more likely, to think of a God like Zeus, who was also called the most high God at this time. But also when we hear they're telling you the way of salvation that that fills in things in our minds. We think of oh being saved from your sin, being saved from that God's wrath, uh, from his judgment. That's what we hear when we hear about salvation. But it's not at all clear that ordinary people in Philippi would think about about that. And you you might experience that when you use religious jargon with people of other religions, you can't assume that they are hearing what you're trying to tell them. When you talk about being saved or who God is, I mean, go to a Muslim context and talk with them about salvation or about the Most High God, and they'll have a very different idea. But the most misleading thing about this is not so much what she's saying, it's that she's well known in the city, for what? for being possessed by a demon, by some texts let's call it this Python spirit, because she was a follower of the God Apollo. Okay? But, and everywhere she goes, she's shouting, "These guys are telling you how to be saved." Now look at verse 18, because this is not just something that happened that one Saturday. Verse 18, and this she kept doing for many days. And so Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Now we are not told for sure if that young lady became a follower of Jesus or not. Maybe she did, maybe she didn't. I hope she did. But either way, as we read the story from our perspective, we would look at this story as really good news. This is a wonderful thing. She has been delivered from slavery to the powers of darkness. Who would not be happy about that? But verse 19, But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these guys are Jews and they are disturbing our city and they are advocating customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. As you can tell, these owners of that girl do not care about that girl at all. They don't care if she's been delivered from demonic oppression. All they care about is the money. And without the evil spirit, they know their hope of money is gone. And you can tell how upset they are about this. I mean, this is a kind of rage and anger that would be hard for us to maybe sympathize with. Right? They seize Paul and Silas, the leaders of this group. They drag them into the marketplace. This is very public, what they are doing. And then they bring them in front of the city magistrates, and they know exactly how to frame this to get everybody on their side. These guys are Jews. They tap the Jewish card. They're messing up our city. They're trying to get us, Romans, to do stuff Romans can't do. And that taps right into the heart of the people in Philippi, a Roman colony that is very proud of their Roman stuff. Because look at verse 22. The crowd right away joins in attacking them. And the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison and ordered the jailer to keep them safely. And so having received this order, the jailer put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. And this is what they got. For doing what? I mean, what have they done? Cast out a demon from a poor young woman in the name of Jesus. The crowds attack them. The city magistrates strip them publicly. They get their guys to come over and start giving them a public beating. Over and over, they're pounded with rods. Then they're taken and thrown into the prison. Their feet are secured in some wooden stocks so that they cannot move, cannot roll over, cannot get up. This is an incredible amount of pain to bear and it's a lot of shame to bear too. Now, the next scene, we're moved from what happened out in public, we're moved to the very inner cell of the prison in Philippi. It's dark, probably damp. There's a jailer outside, and there are other prisoners around, too. Paul and Silas are hurt. Their bodies are bruised. They're probably going back and forth between sitting up and laying down. Because that's all they can do, with their feet in the stocks. There is not a whole lot of sleeping going on in a situation like this. So what are they doing? Verse twenty-five. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. I mean, they've been there for hours and hours because that would happen during the daytime. They've been there for hours. It's around midnight. Can you hear them praying out loud? Now, that's not too surprising. I think many of us would probably be praying from that situation. But they're not just praying. From their wounded bodies comes out the sound of singing, singing hymns to God. There are probably many psalms that resonated with them that night, in a way that had never resonated with them like that before. I think of a psalm like Psalm 40, which I read earlier. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me. He heard my cry. He drew me up out of the pit, out of the miry bog, and set my feet on a rock. But as for me, I am poor and needy. But the Lord takes thought for me or maybe they were singing some of the earliest hymns about Jesus, because there were already some of those floating around by that time. But whatever they were singing, they had a captive audience there. The other prisoners were there listening. And what else would they be doing? Listening to these beaten men praying and singing. I wonder what they're thinking about those guys. But as we read on, it seems pretty clear somebody else was listening to them too. God was listening. Because look at verse 26. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. Now this area was known for having minor earthquakes, but here in particular there is little doubt this is presented as a special act of God. God hears the prayers of his suffering servants in Philippi and the whole city is shaken with a violent earthquake. It is so intense, it rocks the prison. The doors come open, the stocks that were holding their feet loosen, they have the chance to get up and walk out if they want to. And that is exactly what at least one man there thought they would do. Because verse 27, when the jailer woke up, he's not doing a great job, Guarding, right? When he woke up and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing the prisoners had escaped. After all, who would not think that that would be what they would do? And for this jailer, who is likely a slave himself, this would have meant one thing for him, immediate execution. (laughs) You You can actually read about something like that in Acts chapter 12, where Peter gets released from prison, And the people in charge of him got killed for it. I mean, this is what they did. He only had one job. Watch these guys. And he knows he's going to die. So he thinks, I'd rather take my life than go through that public execution. But before he could do it, you read verse 28. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. Paul could apparently see just well enough to see what the jailer was about to do. And instead of letting them do it, And then walking out, he shouts out, don't do it, we're all here. Not one person here has fled. Now the jailer had seen a lot of strange things that day and that night. But perhaps none was as strange as that. So what does he do? Verse 29, the jailer called for lights and he rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas and he brought them out and he said, sirs, What must I do to be saved? He had seen and heard enough to know those guys have the answer to that question. Perhaps, perhaps, because it happened for many days, perhaps he had heard the demon-possessed girl following them around, shouting this stuff out, that they're servants of the Most High God who know how to be saved. And maybe that's like starting to make more sense to him now. Even if not, he probably would have known the charges against them. He knew why they were in there. And remember, he had seen how they had suffered. Even if he did not beat them with the rods himself, he is definitely the one who fastened their feet in the stocks. He knew their wounds. He knew their shame. And yet, he had heard these guys praying anyway. And not just that, he had heard these guys sing. And then there was the earthquake. He had seen enough to know these guys had the answer to that question. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And what is the answer to that question? What if someone asked you that question? What would be the simplest answer you could give to someone who already knew his need? Here's what Paul said in Silas. Verse 31, and they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. You and all all your household. That was their answer. And it was good news for the jailer. Just believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And it's not true just for him. It's true for his house. And that's where the scene moves. Verse 32. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. Okay, so how did that happen? You have to put together some of the, what's happening. I mean, how could they do that? How could they talk not just to him but to all the people in his house? That must mean that the jailer brought them out of the prison, out of the inner cell. Apparently, his house was near the prison. Maybe it was like in the prison yard or something. But remember, the jailer had one job guard these guys securely, and now he's there taking them out of their cell to his own house in the middle of the night. He apparently wakes up his family and anyone else that lives there in that house so that they can hear what he's just heard. And so Paul and Silas, between midnight and 5 a.m., speak the word of the Lord to him and to all the people in his house. They're able to explain more of what they mean by that simple line, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. They explain Maybe who the most high God really is, what that God has done through his son, Jesus. They proclaim that Jesus has been crucified for our sins, but that he's been raised from the dead to save us. And it helps them explain that simple line believe on the Lord Jesus, and you can be saved. And look at what happens. Again, this is all in the middle of the night. Verse 33 the jailer took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. That's going to probably happen in the prison yard. Some water there, some pool or something. And then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his whole household that he had believed in God. So the very same jailer, who had fastened their feet in the stocks the day before, is now welcoming these guys into his own home, and he's washing their wounds with his own hands. Just like with Lydia, the Lord has opened his heart to the Lord, and not just his, but the hearts of all those living with him. And just like with Lydia, an open heart leads to an open home. And just like with Lydia... Belief in Jesus leads immediately to baptism, which signifies, among other things, the washing away of sins. There was a preacher from over 1,600 years ago, John Chrysostom, who talked about this. He, he, here's how he described the jailer and what, what happened to him. He said, He washed, and he was washed. He washed them from their stripes, and he was himself washed from his sins. The jailer washes the wounds of his own prisoners, and they baptize him with water, signifying his own sins had been washed away. And then they all sit down for a meal. This is one of the most unlikely and most joy-filled meals that has ever been eaten, especially between midnight and 5 a.m. And the joy isn't just over a good meal. As the text says, it's because the jailer had come to believe in God with his entire household. But that's not the end of the story. You might think it is, but there's one more scene to the story. At some point, before everybody else is awake, the jailer takes them back to their prison cell. And as the sun begins to rise, a message comes down to the prison from the leaders of the city. Verse 35, but when it was day, the magistrates sent the police like down to the cell, saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. Now, this this makes it pretty clear, I think, that the authorities knew the charges against them weren't really that big of a deal. They had just wanted to keep the peace the day before, so they gave Paul and Silas a good beating, made them spend a night in prison They had made their point. This would be enough to shut these guys up and to warn everybody else in Philippi, stay away from those guys. So they send word down, let the guys go. And the jailer is is the one who actually gets to deliver the good news to guys who are now his friends. And it seems like he's pretty excited about this. Guys, they let you go. Come out. You can go in peace. But the jailer was in for one more surprise from Paul. Because verse... 37. But Paul said to them, they've beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. Do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come down here themselves and take us out. The first surprise is that Paul just flat out says, no. We are not leaving this cell. They can come here and get us. And the second surprise is to everybody, is what? For the first time in the story, Paul tells them, look, they beat us publicly, without a trial, threw us into jail, and they did all that to us, even though we are Roman citizens. Everyone knew they were Jews. No one knew they were Roman citizens. And Philippi was a place where everyone knew the rights of Roman citizens. After all, it was a Roman colony. Everyone knew what could be done and what could not be done to a Roman citizen. And so look what happens in verse 38. The police reported these words back to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. Why? Because there could be severe consequences for them for mistreating a Roman citizen. So verse 39, so they came and they apologized to them and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. That would have been quite the scene to see those magistrates walking down into that inner cell of the prison and apologizing profusely for what they had done. They take Paul and Silas out of the jail. This whole scene makes it clear publicly that Paul and Silas were in the right. They had been treated shamefully and unjustly, and it was all public, and this was their public vindication. I think Paul and Silas probably wanted that for the church, for their future. The magistrates then ask Paul and Silas to leave the city. And so what do they do? They go to Lydia's house, which perhaps they just went there to grab their stuff since they'd been living there. But it seems to me they were in no hurry to leave the city. Instead, they go back to Lydia's house. They gather the new believers. They probably introduce the jailer and his household to his new brothers and sisters. And they encourage them all in the Lord one more time. And then, notice the text says, they leave. So, that's interesting. It does not say, we left. Which indicates that Luke stays behind in Philippi, probably to help with the new church. And he seems to stay there, actually, for the next several years. This ends the church planting story of the very first church in Philippi. Now, for the last two weeks, we've heard the story of what God did in Philippi many years ago. I hope you have loved the stories. These are some of my favorite stories in the book of Acts. But again, I want to step back try to think of a couple big takeaways from this story, but, but some of it from both of the stories. The first thing that I think is the most well-known thing from this story today is that this text tells, you, tells us how to be saved. <clears throat> that is certainly the key question in this story. When he asks, guys, what do I need to do to be saved? For you who still need to be saved, I will give you the same answer today. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It is not by what we have done or what we can do that we will be saved. It is through turning in faith to Jesus alone that we can be saved. Salvation does not come to us because of what we do. It comes to us in spite of what we have done. Salvation comes to us only through what Christ has done for us. It is the gift of God, a gift that can be received only by faith. And for those of us who are saved, we need to keep sharing the same message. There is no need to revise this message. And there is certainly no way to improve this message. The second takeaway is clear, not just in this story, but in the story of Lydia, too. In both cases, faith in Christ is accompanied right away by what? By baptism. Those who trust Jesus identify with Jesus as their Lord through the waters of baptism. So if you have not identified with Christ through baptism, but would like to or like to learn more about that, Please come. We have a Bible class in two weeks on that topic for anyone who wants to learn more about that. The third takeaway is also clear in both the story of the jailer and of Lydia. In both cases, they brought the gospel home to their entire households, to spouses and children if they had them, but to everyone else living and working in their house. In the case of the jailer especially, it seems like he woke everyone up in the middle of the night so they could hear the message of Jesus that he had just embraced. And I'm reminded that sometimes the hardest people to share Jesus with are those with our own families, those who know all of our faults the very best. But may God help us to bring the gospel not just to the community, but to bring the gospel home. The fourth takeaway is from the story of what happened to Paul and Silas in Philippi. These guys did nothing wrong, and yet they suffered great pain, terrible injustice, and bore very much shame. I don't know if you thought about this as we looked at the end of the story, but one of the most perplexing questions when you get to the end of the the story is why did they wait? until the next day to tell everyone they were Roman citizens. I mean, from the way that the magistrates responded when they found that out about them, it seems like Paul and Silas could have avoided the suffering and the shame if they had just told them. So why did they wait? I don't know that we'll ever know the answer, the full answer for sure, but I think there's at least two things that are well-grounded. And one is that Paul had a very different perspective on suffering for Jesus than I think most American Christians do. In fact, it's, a, it's something I struggle with myself to have his perspective. And if you want to see what I mean, read Philippians we're going to see it throughout the series. But what is clear to me is that Paul did not avoid suffering at all costs. If God's path for him went through suffering, he would still walk that path because there were things he could get through suffering for Jesus that he knew he could not get in other ways. That did not mean Paul went out looking for suffering or just trying to get people to hurt him. But he did not run from it. But the other thing I can mention is that it seems clear to me that Paul wanted to set an example for the new Christians in Philippi of how to suffer well for Jesus. After all, not all of them were Roman citizens. Not all of them would be able to pull the citizenship card So Paul and Silas waited to do it. And they set an example for the young church and for us still today that God never promised an easy path. In fact, God's path for us often runs not around suffering and shame, but right through it. And that leads me to my last takeaway, which is that it is a lot easier to walk the path of suffering and shame when you know your Savior has already walked that path that he did not run from that. Jesus bore not only our sins, he bore our shame. We struggle to connect with the feelings of shame sometimes that were dominant in the first century, the thoughts of being shamed publicly. We can resonate some with it, but Jesus bore not only our sins, he bore our shame. He was publicly humiliated. He was unjustly condemned. He suffered for sins he had never done. He bled and died for our sins. And Jesus could have pulled any cart he wanted to get out of the suffering and the shame. He held all the cards, so to speak, and he pulled none of them. He did that because he loved us. He did that to save us. But as Peter says, when he thought about that, he said Jesus also did that to set an example for us so that we would follow in his footsteps. Jesus does not call us down a path. He was not willing to go. And so take heart that you have a Savior who knows pain, injustice, and shame. But also take heart that you have a savior who is now risen from the grave, whose life guarantees that pain, sorrow, and shame will not be the end of any of our stories. And we can praise him for that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these wonderful stories. They remind us of your saving power. They stir us to want to take the gospel around the world and even into our own homes. Lord, I pray that you will do a good work in us, that you will save those who need saving, that you will lead folks to identify with Jesus in baptism. And I pray that you will strengthen all of us as we have thought about Jesus, who suffered for our sins and bore our shame. May we find hope and rest and encouragement in him. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for all you've done for us. We pray all these things in your name, amen.